This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. In fact, why are we all buying diamonds then? Why aren't we buying emeralds? Because the advertising campaign for diamonds has gone on for a hundred years and is the equivalent of a military grade psyop, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. That's why we all buy diamonds. Welcome to With Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery, an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. Asia, thank you so much for doing this. I oh, really appreciate it. And actually, I have to say, occasionally at the end of the podcast, I say, oh, if anyone has anything that they would love to hear about, please let us know. And I've had requests for you. Oh, that's nice. Which is really nice. So here we go. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm here with Asia Raden, the New York Times best-selling author of Stone, which is about jewellery obsessions and how desire shapes the world, and her new book, The Truth About Lies. And she's the star of the documentary film Nothing Lasts Forever, which probes the diamond industry. It's a study of how myths are made. So today I wanted to talk with Asia particularly about what makes a thing valuable and the psychology of desire. But Asia, first of all, I think people would love to know how your own jewellery obsession started. Because you talk in your book about your mother not having a jewellery box, but having a jewellery closet. Yeah, she's she was a little bit of a jewellery hoarder and very glamorous. And, um, you know, it's funny, I was actually thinking about it last night. I was remembering a bracelet that she had. It was costume jewellery. And it was the style in the mid-80s. It was a bangle covered in teeny tiny cut crystals. And we made it red and black like uh, leopard print. And in retrospect, apart from being dated, it was just costume jewelry. But I just remember that was my favorite object in the world. And she also had shoes. I think they were Stuart Weissman that were black pointy-toed heels, but they had diamonds around the edge of where your foot goes. And I just thought my mother was the most glamorous woman in the world. I mean, I I think that sort of bleeds into the next question about value, but I I think part of what jewelry is, is it's a synonymous stand-in for other things, whether it's authority, like a badge or commitment, like a wedding ring, or I just associate sparkles with my very glamorous mother. And being at home, I guess. Yeah. Part of your childhood and happy memories. Well, you know, if you like your mother, your mother is associated (laughs) with being at home and happy memories, which I do. Did that inspire you to then go and work at the estate jewelers that you worked at? Oh, no, I had already been working sort of on jewelry, in jewelry for years at that point. I got a part-time job in a a boutique in Santa Barbara when I was in high school. I would design things for a jeweler who my mother bought a lot of jewelry from. We would go in there and she would go, do you want these? Do you want these? And I'd go, no, I don't like those. They would look better if they had a briolette on them. And, you know, they were accommodating. Eventually it got so elaborate that 
the jeweler said, just draw a picture. And I did. And he made me what I wanted. Then a month or so later, my mom and I were walking past the window and there were five or six pairs of those earrings in the window with different colored stones. And I said, look, I'm a real jewelry designer. And she said, look, I think somebody owes you some money. (laughs) And we kind of came to an arrangement where I got charged less for the things I designed, you know, just cost. And then they could use the designs. And this was because you loved it and you wanted to wear it. I don't remember ever not being fixated on treasure. I have an early memory of an aquarium. And the only part of it I remembered or care about was the fake treasure box in the bottom that opened and closed. I must have been very, very tiny because I wanted to get it out, but I remember thinking it's too deep. I can't reach the bottom of that. So it must have been three, maybe four. And obviously it was just one of those fake treasure boxes you put in an aquarium. But I thought if I could get it out, there was a string of pearls in there and it looked like there were some little jewels in there. I've just always been singularly fixated on jewels. And I'm sure there are a lot of reasons, but I'm not sure obsession always requires a reason. Obsession's irrational and trying to cite a reason for it is trying to make something irrational into something rational. And I I'm not sure there's a point. So you got yourself to House of Khan Estate Jewelers. You became senior designer for an LA-based fine jeweler, Takori. Mm-hmm. And that started making you obviously think about why people wanted jewellery and what sparks this desire. I've always been curious about why people do what they do and what they're thinking. But actually, that's not how I, I came to write that book at all. I had moved to London. You know, you, you can... You can be a jewelry designer in the U.S., but if you want to do high jewelry, you go to London or you go to Paris. And I had some interviews set up, and then my college roommate came through town, and she is a novelist. She was on a book tour, and she said, come to my birthday party. Her birthday party was in Paris. And I got there, and it was three-day extravaganza because she throws parties like that. But everyone there was from publishing, and I didn't have much to talk to them about. Everyone kept saying, I heard you're a jewelry designer. And I kept going, yeah. And then they'd go, huh. And that was the end of the conversation. Publishing's very clicky, which I'm sure you know. And, <laughs> and um, on the second or third night, I was sitting next to a very pregnant woman with her hands on her stomach. And I noticed that her engagement ring was mine. It was one of my designs from Takori. She said, I heard you're a jewelry designer. And I went, yeah. And she went, huh. And I just went back to drinking my champagne and she went, well, what kind of jewelry do you design? And I said, actually, that kind. And I pointed at her ring and she said, you design engagement rings? And I said, no, Cupcake, I designed your engagement ring. (laughs) And she said, what? No, Uh, we bought this in New York. And I said, yeah, but it's from a company called Takori and I'm the designer. I, I designed all of it for the last few years. She got very excited, said, Stephen, Stephen, she, she designed my ring. And he was sitting across from me. He was her husband. And I said, yeah, you know what? I designed yours, too, because he had the matching wedding band. He asked me uh, what men always ask when they hear that you work in jewelry. Is it a good one? They always talk about money, don't yes. they? Yes, yes, they do. They do. <laughs> they always go, is it a good one? And they don't really want the answer. They just want to hear yes particularly because we were in a dark, smoky bar in Paris and it was like three o'clock in the morning. What am I going to do? Get out a loop and appraise your diamond? So I said, yeah, it's great. And he went, what? It's not? 
tell me the truth. What's wrong with it? And I thought I shouldn't have said it like that. I backpedaled a little and I went, no, no, really, it's, it's really good. It's a good one. And he just kept hammering at, what's wrong with it? Tell me the truth. Tell me the truth. Finally, I just snapped and I said, you want to know the truth? The truth is they're all exactly the same and none of them are worth anything. At which point you could like hear a fork drop because the whole table had gotten quiet. And his wife, lovely woman named Jess, said, well, that's interesting because I know we paid more than that for it. He just looked suspicious and confused. It turned into a conversation while I tried to explain myself about diamond cartels and imaginary value and where diamond rings came from. And then halfway through the story, he says to my roommate, the birthday girl, can she write? And because she was my college roommate, she said, I don't know if she can even read. <laughs> but ultimately it turned out he was her book agent. And they spent the rest of the night trying to convince me to write a book, which I had never thought to do. I said, no, I, I don't read, she's right, don't make me do it. I draw pictures, I'm an artist. And, you know, they were very persuasive and they convinced me it was a good idea and I should just give it a try. So I gave it a try and I ended up writing this book, Stoned, and one of the chapters is based in part on the story I was telling him and the concept I was trying to explain. Well, and we're all glad you did write it because you brought up so many interesting points. I mean, firstly, you intimate that something that's beautiful isn't only aesthetically pleasing, it physically motivates us. And you talk about some brain scan studies. It shows that things that sparkle and bright, beautiful things trigger our hand movement. Is that right? Sort of. The study you're thinking of, I think, is the first thing I say in the book, if I remember correctly, that when you see something beautiful, it doesn't have to be sparkly, really anything beautiful, flowers, a pretty person, something aesthetically appealing, you would think it would light up on these brain scans, pleasure centers in your brain or something like that. What it actually does is the first thing it lights up is your motor cortex. What it's doing is reactively telling you to reach out and touch or take or grab whatever it is you saw you liked. In that sense, I think I said beauty literally moves us physically. It moves us toward beautiful things. It moves us to engage with beautiful things. So we're hardwired to go towards it. Yeah. To it's, be attracted. It's, it's just, it's more than instinctive. It's biological. And as far as sparkles go, that's slightly different. But everyone is transfixed by sparkles. And the reason for it is when you see something shiny or something sparkly, it's 2022. You know what you're looking at. But your brain isn't in 2022. Parts of your brain have existed since long before we were mammals. You know, the lizard part of your brain sees shiny or sparkly as water. And everyone who sees shiny or sparkly immediately thinks, there it is, I have to have it, I need it. I'll die if I don't get it. Because that's, you know, that would be true if it was water. Could be one of the reasons that we're drawn to diamonds because the original Golconda diamonds, the mine is now um, depleted, where the grading was called water, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Because they were so colourless, so pure. Yeah. Yeah, they had to drop that part of the rating and just do away with it before the South African diamond rush because South African diamonds just don't have water. They're not that good. We can't help it, basically. That's our excuse yeah. for being jewellery people. <laughs> I mean, I, you want a reason for my obsession with jewellery? Maybe I'm just extremely well adapted to survival. That is a good point. <laughs> so now we know that we desire it and we want it. 
but what's it worth? And here you, it gets very complicated, doesn't it? Does. it into what it's worth and what we imagine it's worth. And those aren't separate things. They're not solitary things either. One person doesn't decide on the imaginary value of an object. You know, I mean, think of a keepsake. It's valuable to you and that makes it valuable. If I took your childhood memento or your teddy bear or your picture, you'd pay me to get it back, wouldn't you? Probably. But somebody else wouldn't pay me for it. So value isn't really fixed. And then it becomes much more complicated when there are lots of people involved and it's the same item. For example, a diamond. It works like an economic syllogism. Everybody has to have it because everybody has to have it. And that can result in the development of value from nowhere, the creation of what an economist named Fred Hirsch called positional good. It's when an object still has no fixed value in and of itself. Its value is only set in relation to others of its kind. So is it a good one for a diamond ring? There really is no answer. The question is, is it a better one than the girl sitting next to you? Or bigger. Bigger, <laughs> better. Yeah. And it, the interesting thing is, that's not just true in economics. It turned out to be true in psychological studies as well. One of these studies was done by giving people a diamond and asking them how much they liked it, you know, to rate it, how good does it look, how shiny is it? Basically, non-professionals sort of like grade this diamond. And they were all in pairs and one person got a bigger one than the other person. And then they put them together and they got to see the other persons. And later they asked them to go back and do it again. Just look at this diamond we gave you. How good do you think it is? And the person with the smaller one suddenly thought theirs was not as clear, not as sparkly. That diamond isn't as good as it was a few hours ago. And the person with the bigger one suddenly thought theirs was better than they had previously thought it was. It was bigger, it was sparklier, it was whiter, because they had seen a smaller one. So it's just we're very competitive animals. That's one aspect of it, yeah. Expenditure cascades, where everyone races everyone else to have more and more and more. Again, you can't even necessarily help that you're doing it. These are hardwired behaviours. And in fact, there's, there's a little bit here that in your book I was going to read back to you. What you said is they're just rocks that we've given special names. True jewels are things that are beautiful and scarce. We want them because few others can possess them. We want them even more if they're from somewhere very far away, some far away exotic place. And so you're not putting diamonds in that category. I think diamonds are an interesting, tricky example, different than a lot of other jewels, because they really are manufactured. Their value was deliberately manufactured in a way that other jewels have an accidentally manufactured value. I wrote in one chapter about an emerald crash in Spain, and it was the first time it had ever happened in recorded history that emeralds suddenly became worthless, like the tulip bubble popping. And it was because huge amounts of them had been found in Colombia, and they were being brought back by the metric ton. Suddenly, everybody thought, well, these aren't really worth anything. That's how it works. They're valuable because they're rare, because they're scarce. And then because they're rare and they're scarce, they become incredibly valuable. And because they're incredibly valuable, they become incredibly expensive. And once they're incredibly expensive, the only people who can have them are royalty, are, I don't know, movie stars, whoever. And then in the rest of our minds, we start to associate them with that sort of exclusivity and importance, and they become even more valuable. And it's self-perpetuating, unless something 
introduces reality into the situation like a metric ton of emeralds. We see them, we go, I guess those aren't that valuable. The reason that I say diamonds are a tricky example is because they're part of a vast, elaborate marketing campaign that has existed for about 100 years to make people think they're rare and valuable on purpose. And it's a fascinating case study in mass psychology and consumer psychology, but it, it also makes them not a great stand-in for other jewels when you're talking about how they become valuable. For anyone listening, when you talked about the tulip bubble, you're referring to tulip mania in the 17th century in mm -hmm. Holland, which yeah. basically destroyed the Dutch economy. Yeah, it was the first ever recorded economic bubble, you know, like the housing bubble in 2008. Everybody went crazy over tulips because even though you associate them with Holland, they're not from Europe, they're from Turkey, and no one had seen them before. And when they got there, rich people were, this is exactly what I'm talking about, rich people were obsessed with them. Very wealthy people had themselves painted in those Dutch master paintings. They always have tulips in the background, or they're holding a tulip, or there's a vase of tulips in front of them. And it was to show off wealth. It was the way you would wear your best jewelry in a picture. You would also show that you had these tulips because you had a tulip garden. Because of that, middle-class people started to feel compelled to have just just one tulip plant in a pot, even though they couldn't really afford it at that point because the prices started to inflate in ways you can't imagine people would pay for a tulip. They, eventually, they cost as much as a house, but middle-class people would have to have one just to show they were part of the right class, like having that one diamond engagement ring or that one string of pearls your whole life. You feel compelled to do it to show that you have it, even though you don't really have that kind of wealth. Everybody, this was an expenditure cascade, started getting more and more and the prices got higher and higher. And then an auction one day in Harlem didn't happen. And it didn't happen because the Black Plague had broken out in a house down the street. But there was no Twitter. No one knew that. They just knew no one showed up to buy the tulip bulbs. And within a few days, the tulip market crashed and half the country was destitute. And they went to The Hague and tried to get help and they declared it gambling losses and said, you know, we don't want anything to do with this mess. So you infer that all this hype is in the diamond industry as well. What makes the diamond industry interesting is that it's almost entirely hype. Diamonds aren't rare. Uh, the white ones are particularly not rare. I mean, I suppose if you have a blue diamond or a red diamond, that's rare. But those white diamonds that are under two carats that everybody has in their engagement ring or their earrings, those are not rare. They haven't been rare since they were discovered in South Africa. And their entire value has been deliberately based on the idea that they are the rarest, most precious gemstone on the earth. And you have to have one. And we associate them with marriage and engagement rings. And you have to have that too. And all of that was made up by an advertising company in the 40s. Yeah, that was quite a long time ago. The Diamond is Forever campaign. Mm -hmm. um, it was, was it Frances Garrity who, who came up with it? And um, her partner, Dorothy Dignam, sort of invented product placement. And then, of course, Hollywood caught on and Harry Winston did Diamond Loaning and the whole thing kind of grew, didn't Dorothy it? Dorothy Dignam did, did Diamond Loaning to Hollywood long before Harry Winston. Did she? Did uh -huh. she? She would make deals with movie producers to have the diamonds in the movie, and then they could keep them, or they would get something. But I don't think people are dear to that now. I mean, all the young girls in Vogue, when they get engaged, they don't look for a diamond. They look for something cool. And it could be a coloured stone, it could be just a Cartier, Juste en Clue, it could be anything that they, they find cool-looking. You're thinking about a very chic set of girls. I remember I was designing engagement rings 
during the big economic downturn in 2008, 2009. And all of my friends lost their jobs. They were all bankers or, or they were lawyers or whatever. And I remember going for drinks with a couple of my girlfriends and one of them who had gotten fired when Lehman's collapsed said, how are you the only person who still has a job? And I said, well, you know, wedding rings and gravestones. Everybody's always going to want one of those. That's a safe business. And it still is. Nobody's going out of business making diamond engagement rings. But it's a choice. But you don't think it's a personal choice. You think it's much more that we've been conditioned to want that, you think? I think very much so that people were conditioned on a large scale to want diamonds, to believe that they're valuable. And I think it was Oppenheimer who said a necessary good. He, he said they needed to figure out how to use various forms of propaganda to make people believe they were a necessary good, like, an, like a good you have to have. And it worked. Everybody believed it. And they expanded globally into countries that didn't even do engagement rings. As soon as they expanded into Japan, where they didn't use engagement rings, within a few years, half the country had them. And now they're the second biggest market, I think. They were when I was writing the book. So you're, you're talking about almost that they've kind of perpetrated a swindle on girls. I don't know if it was a swindle or it was more like a magic trick. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a magic trick. Sort of Because both. there is something about, as we've said, talked about that sort of human vision of seeing something sparkly that we kind of go towards it. So I think people do, they are drawn to them. Yeah, but they hold uh, a position in the economy that other gemstones don't. And that was absolutely manufactured. Well, I suppose when De Beers had the monopoly, they could control the, the supply, mm -hmm. which they can't now, can they? because the monopoly's over and, you know, they only have about 25% of the market now. But let's talk about this neurological effect of supply and demand. And you described an experiment with um, cookies and how people perceived cookies when they were moved about. Yeah. So this was an experiment done a long time ago on supply and demand. And basically the scientists took the test subject and they offered them cookies. And in the book, I think, you know, to make it clearer, I just said red and blue, red and blue cookies. I have no idea what color they actually were or what kind they were. And I remember arguing with the editor about that. She kept asking questions. And I was like, do you want me to put a recipe in the index? <laughs> really? Um, it's not important. The important part was there were two kinds. And when there were equal amounts, people were indifferent to which kind. And when they made sure there were less red ones, people started to think the red ones must be better and they wanted those instead of the blue ones. So when there was more of one kind, it became less valuable and less desirable. And when there was less of one kind, it became more desirable and more valuable. But simple supply and demand. The interesting part of the experiment was they then manipulated it so that it appeared other people were taking the red cookies, not that they had put less on the plate. So they thought what they were seeing was a dwindling supply of something. And that was the most valuable kind of cookie there could be, was one that other people were taking that might run out. So when things are at their most valuable and appealing to us, it's when other people want them. And they're in short supply. Yeah. Short supply will make it valuable. Short supply and desired by others makes it invaluable. And you'll compete over it. Because these were neurological studies, and what they found was that it put your brain into an almost fight-or-flight position where it was hyper stimulated and you were going to get that thing that's running out. But at the same time, you could not think clearly. It basically made you primed 
to take action, but incapable of taking rational action. That's kind of scary. Yeah, but it explains a lot of the way people behave about beautiful things. Well, it explains a lot of the jewelry break-ins that we have. Oh, I just had a bunch of jewelry stolen. Oh, I'm sorry. What, from your home? Yeah, I'm really upset about it. Emotional things. Yeah, and valuable. I had a, a strand of big opal pearls. It was fairly valuable, and I had a a blue pearl necklace that was emotional value and it was beautiful, but it was something that my mom gave me when I was in high school. I was thinking about this because did you see there was a, a video that went viral earlier this year at the Tefaf, um Fair, a big antique art jewellery fair, and somebody took a sledgehammer in the middle of the day no. and bashed down this sort of glass vitrine at one of the jewelers. This is a very sedate, very elegant, very rarefied atmosphere. Uh-huh. And there are these people literally hammering, no masks on or anything, and they steal some jewellery. Now, they appeared to know what they were taking. They took some jar jewellery, but the greatest designer alive today, Joel Rosenthal. Oh, my God. Now... It's so identifiable, they can't really sell it. So it made me wonder, given that you say this sort of desire provokes us all to become mad and jealous and competitive to get things, I thought maybe somebody really stole it just to possess it, just to own it privately. I suspect if it was that kind of smash and grab, somebody wanted it badly enough that they paid them to do that. Yeah. Because they're not, the person who has it now isn't going to sell it, but I doubt it was the person who smashed the glass. No, exactly. But they wanted it enough to make it happen so they could possess it. Well, if I were a detective, the people I would start with, I would find out if that jewelry had any previous owners. Maybe they wanted it back. Maybe they had to sell it at some point. Maybe they lost it. Mm-hmm. That does sound personal. Because, yeah, you, you can't really resell that. And it no. often isn't gemstone heavy. And it's just so recognisable mm. that anyone in the trade or anyone who came across it would know what it was. And, and people do yearn to own pieces by And you wouldn't want to sell it while disguising that that's what it was because that's where the value is. It's value. Yes, exactly. So there we go. I think we need to start a true crime podcast now, Asia, and we'll solve this crime. Oh my God, that would be so fun. <laughs> a true crime podcast for jewel thieves. Let's do that. We're okay. going to do that next to everybody. I'm in. <laughs> um, so now there's one you know, famous example of the idea of value that you unpick in the book, which is for sale of the island of Manhattan which I'd love to talk about for a minute, okay. that, the, you know, that the Dutch owned Manhattan and swapped it for a pile of glass beads. And of course, a lot of people weighed in and say, this is a terrible swindle. They were fooled into thinking these mm-hmm. beads were valuable. But you, you unpick it in a very interesting way. So will you tell us what your thoughts are? Most people think that story is apocryphal, that it didn't happen and that it's just a way of, of sort of demeaning Native Americans being like, they sold Manhattan for a bag full of beads. But it did happen. There's a deed of sale in a museum. The Dutch East India Company wanted to buy the island and they had to buy land for something. It didn't matter what they paid rather than just show up and stick a flag in it. Because at that point, the Spanish and the Portuguese had been doing it much longer than them. And the Catholic Church had given them a monopoly on the New World. And they wanted to have something to point to later. If somebody said, this isn't your island, they could say, oh, isn't it? Look, they sold it to us. So they frequently bought things from the Native Americans who they called the Vilden. And in this case, 
they bought this island. They did, in fact, buy it for about $24 worth of glass beads and buttons and things. But it still isn't the story people think it is, where the most valuable real estate in the world was sold for some crap. At the time, glass trade beads were used by people who, from Europe who would go to other countries, whether it was in Indonesia or in Africa or in the New World, because there was no glass in those places, in most of those places, certainly not in North America. Glass had not been invented. So these colorful glass beads, much like a jewel from, say, a sapphire from Sri Lanka, was something beautiful and rare. And exotic. Yeah, exactly. It was worth a lot of money. The other idea that people have that's mistaken is that these people, the Lenape, had no concept of money. They actually absolutely did. The system they used through most of the United States was based on beads. The wampum beads. Yeah, beads made out of shells. Mm. Um, but they were very standardized. They weren't just any beads made out of shells. And Ironically, New York has always been the banking center of the world because it was the banking center of North America. They made these wampum shell beads and distributed them to everyone else. And so when some people showed up and offered them rare, exotic, sparkly glass beads as money for an island that was not the most valuable real estate in the world, it was incredibly worthless real estate at the time, not just because this continent was expansive and had a lot of land. But because Manhattan particularly, you know, those big granite boulders in Central Park, mm -hmm. the whole island is made out of them just under the ground. So you can't farm, you can't really plant things. It turned out the only thing it was good for was skyscrapers. And it would be hundreds of years before anybody found out that was going to be convenient, granite bedrock. It also had constant storms, which anyone in New York probably knows about. And what they don't know about is that it was much smaller. 15 or 20% of it at this point is made out of trash. The shores had to keep being shored up with landfill. And it was done so many times that it's now 15 or 20% bigger. It wasn't a great piece of land. And they offered these people who had very advanced understanding of banking and private ownership and money and land rights and land use, what they would see as more valuable foreign currency. But your point about scarcity works both ways there, doesn't it? For the beads and for the island of Manhattan, because you say that that only became highly valued when the land became yeah. scarce. Space was scarce. Yeah. And in addition to that, it's sort of like the way we want diamonds because, or we want precious gems, because not only do we believe they're precious because they're scarce, but because they're scarce, they become expensive and only certain people can have them. And then that factors back into their value as well. Who doesn't want a townhouse in Manhattan? And how many people can afford one? It's self-perpetuating imaginary value. And so to go back to the diamonds, I guess the created diamonds, the lab grown, that's going to have a huge effect on the value of created and mined stones because we're going to have so many more of them. Well, that's an interesting question. We already have so many more diamonds than anyone could ever need. I think 20 years ago, the estimate was 4.5 billion carats, just in human hands, not coming out of the ground. And we dig up exponentially more every year. So 
We believe diamonds are much more scarce than they are. So when you said that in your film, Nothing Lasts Forever, mm-hmm. did you say that to um, Stephen Lucia of De Beers, who we've had on the podcast, by the way? Um, did, you, did you challenge him with that? No, I did not speak to him directly. But yes, he was asked those questions and didn't really answer them. It's really interesting to watch. Martin Rappaport answered them. So Martin Rappaport does the Rappaport Price the general price index of diamonds. And while he comes across sketchier, I think he was more honest in his replies, but but combative. Stephen Lussier, you can tell he spent his entire adult life with De Beers because he really either really believes or is just all in on what he keeps referring to as the diamond dream. And I just want to be like, buddy, wake up! Because he just sat there telling anecdotes about how beautiful Botswana is and all of the wonderful things they've done for them. And they do. Now that they do, because I've seen that for myself. Yes. I've seen the hospitals. I've seen yes. the orphanages. I've seen the mining conditions. I've seen an African country lifted out of economic strife into independence. There I will challenge women. you. Employment. Nope, there I will challenge you on the word independence. It's given a lot of people independence. There's so many women working in this. It's given a lot of people cash. Having economic independence. It's given a lot of people cash. And every time they argue about anything, they're told there are other countries with diamonds and this could all go away. Well, no, because De Beers are in a um, a joint company with the government in Botswana, Mm -hmm. Debswana, so it's not going anywhere. They've put their entire sorting and cutting and polishing in I'm not Botswana. saying it's realistic for them to actually up and move. I'm saying it's not really... There are a lot of good things that go on in Botswana, and there are a lot of bad things that go on in Botswana. And they don't advertise the less attractive aspects of that arrangement. So, in fact, if we've got so many diamonds, then why do we need the created? So surely the created diamonds should not be created because we sure don't need any more. And it's different to cultured pearls because when Mickey Moto started making cultured pearls, we'd run out of natural pearls. You couldn't get them. There weren't any more. Oysters would be extinct by now. Yeah. So we don't need the created diamonds and we've got enough mined ones. The thing about synthetic diamonds that's the most interesting about them, certainly to me, is their technological applications. They're going to be the backbone of quantum computing, ultimately. I think whether or not they're going to affect the price, which was the original question, or the value of natural diamonds, I think no. So much of how we feel about jewelry is irrational, and people irrationally want real diamonds, even though lab-grown diamonds and not lab-grown diamonds are exactly the same thing. This isn't like a cultured pearl. There is no nut at the center of it. It's really just a diamond. Yet, given the option between two, identical diamonds, if one of them was lab-grown and the other wasn't, wouldn't you want the other one? Yes. Yeah, it's irrational. We're we're trying Mm. to make something irrational, rational, and it isn't. And I also think they're going to be too valuable for industrial applications to be used for jewelry, ultimately, when they really perfect making these large, micro-thin diamond wafers. On top of that, I think once they are the backbone of the next computer revolution, no one would want them in jewelry because you don't propose to somebody with like a silicon engagement ring, right? No, it's not romantic. If it's in your laptop, it can't be that valuable. 
Now, that's factually untrue because my iPhone is full of rare earth minerals that are worth a lot more than a pair of diamond earrings. But people don't think about it that way. We imagine and create value in our minds. But we we have to have the romance and magic somewhere in our lives, don't we? Well, it's an interesting question. I think we would anyway, even if it wasn't attached to diamonds, we'd attach it to something else. And out of interest, because you talk about a lot of, um, sorry to go back a bit to... Um, when Frances Garrity was, was making the tagline Diamonds Are Forever and there was a lot of focus within De Beers to create this desire for people to target men that they should spend three months' salary on a diamond engagement because that was the way to prove your success, have a successful life. And you, you quote a couple of internal memos at the time of them stating this. It was interesting because it certainly was all about cr- creating this desire oh, yeah, they, within they, people. They flat out say in these memos what they're doing. And what they say is exactly what I'm saying. How do we use propaganda in various forms? That's an actual quote. I suppose it's, it's a slightly more successful version of recently when we've had diamonds that weren't really of use in fine jewellery, so black diamonds or brown-coloured diamonds, and then they got repackaged, remarketed as cognac-coloured or cinnamon-coloured, and suddenly they became much more desirable. Well, yeah, absolutely. You only want things because other people want them. I mean, that, that is the basis of irrational value, a positional good. Its, it's value isn't based on any actual quality. It's based on how much people want it. And you talk about neuroeconomics that in between your eyes there is you determine value and emotion in the same place is that right oh the ventromedial prefrontal cortex it's a little spot in your brain right here sort of like where you'd have a bindi mark a little lower than that but yeah right between your eyes and the back Mm -hmm. and in this spot in your brain you do two separate things you determine the worth of something the value of something You know, like that study where they said, look at this diamond and tell me how good you think it is. Is it a good one? Or you go to a flea market and you say, I'm not going to pay that much. That's not worth that. That's your ventromedial prefrontal cortex in action. Oddly enough, this exact same little tiny nub right there in your brain also determines your emotional attachment to things. Like the fact that I'm more upset about the blue pearls my mom gave me in high school than this wildly expensive opal necklace that was also stolen along with them. I am more emotionally attached to that. And the wires get crossed often. And it turns out those two instincts can be melded. I love it, so it's worth a lot of money. Or it's worth a lot of money, so I love it. It just keeps ping-ponging back and forth. And that is the essence of how and why diamonds are valuable. And then you can add in other emotional attachments, like it's an engagement ring. It means somebody loves me, so it's very valuable. All of this happens in this little spot Hmm. right here. It's very interesting, that. Well, because you'd think they'd be very separate ideas. Yes. So uh, we can be very confused then, basically. You're saying that we can be very confused. Very easily confused. (laughs) And anyone who has a grasp of how people think, like maybe people in advertising, are very good at confusing people on purpose to make them... Do something. And I love the way you talk about green in the book. That was my favorite chapter about emeralds. Everybody loves green. Everybody loves green. Now, why does everybody love green? A lot of reasons, but the most foundational one is you have three kinds of cone cells in your eyes. They, they pick up red, green, I think it's blue. And um, they're all 
variously sensitive to different wavelengths of light, but all of them are hypersensitive to 510 nanometers. And that is a particular shade of green. And everybody's eyes are most sensitive to that. You can see it most easily. You can see it in the lowest light because your eyes have been evolving for millions and millions of years to look for green, just like you look for sparkles and water. And because of because that- Because it means fertile ground that you yeah. can grow. Yes. It means edible. It means life. It means, it means life. It means there's water nearby. So green, the same way our eyes have evolved to pick it out, at the same time, our brains have evolved when we see it to be happy with what we're seeing, basically. It stimulates certain chemicals in your mind that tell you everything's good. Your heart rate goes down. Your blood pressure goes down. It'll actually produce endorphins. It's why people paint prisons and mental hospitals and regular hospitals green so often, various shades of green, to lower people's blood pressure, to make them calm, to make them happy. And at the same time, it has a stimulating effect that says, go. It's why buy it now buttons are green. It's why the green light in a traffic signal's green tells you, go ahead, all good. So in effect, why are we all buying diamonds then? Why aren't we buying emeralds Because the advertising campaign for diamonds has gone on for a hundred years and is the equivalent of a military grade psyop if I'm going to be perfectly honest. That's why we all buy diamonds. So would other greens, green peridot, would that Mm -hmm. have the same effect as emeralds? Yeah, there have been times and places where peridot were devastatingly valuable. And these values come and go based on how available they are or in how available we believe they are. But, you know, to your question, why are we all buying diamonds? For a long time before De Beers, they were not the thing to have. The most valuable thing to have was an emerald. And the thing people have wanted for the longest, as far as I know, are emeralds. They've actually been found in Neolithic, I think I said rank signifying headdress. It's a caveman tiara. There are caveman tiaras made out of bones and resin and little green emeralds. People have been putting them in jewelry for that long. So basically, it's what we want to believe is the most powerful thing as opposed to what we're looking at. It's what we want to believe. What we want to believe and what we believe and what is true are terrifyingly overlapped. People mostly believe what they want to believe and what they believe becomes reality like the value of diamonds. There isn't that much of a distinction between the three. So if we, when we watch your film about diamonds, are they going to make diamonds lose the sparkle for us? I couldn't if I wanted to. I already gave it a shot and stoned. It didn't work. But, but that's what makes diamonds so interesting. It's been so successful and so ingrained into everyone's sense of reality that even when you find out they're not rare and that this was all done on purpose by a cartel, you still want one. I don't know. I think it's kind of one of the first things we ever did. Can you imagine finding something that sparkled but when you find them, they don't sparkle. When I, yeah, but as they did, they're still interesting nuggets, pebbles. It's what we've done. But you from can the see why beginning. before diamond cutting, a raw emerald was more appealing than a raw diamond. Actually, yes, now, I now can that we're see talking that. about it, they're really I beautiful. They look not really that different, it. and a diamond just looks like a piece of sea glass. It needed the man to cut it and release that fire, didn't it? Ludwig van Brecken invented modern diamond cutting. It's like we're sort of having to be a herd mentality here. You're sort of saying we're sheep. We're a bunch of sheep. <laughs> oh, I don't think you should take it that personally. <laughs> you can't hear this, but I'm, I'm flashing her a big diamond right now <laughs> on the camera. She looks a bit like Elizabeth Taylor, let me tell you, everybody. I'm Thank going you. to put some pictures up with dark <laughs> hair that 
the red lips, the sparkly diamonds, I can tell you. <laughs> but, but around my neck. An emerald. An emerald, because it's my favourite. So we're going to see the film, see what we think. You're, you're very pleased with it. Yeah, I, I think it turned out really well. I think, I mean, on the on one hand, it's about myth-making. And if you read Stoned, uh, the chapter on diamonds, a lot of it'll feel familiar, the concepts and the themes. But what it's about in a you know minute-to-minute sense is this scandal that arose around mixing, synthetic diamonds being illicitly mixed in with regular diamonds. And the producer was already working on this story when he contacted me. And that was how we met originally. He was investigating it. It's interesting, and it's about your question, is this going to destroy the value of diamonds? These are valid questions. And so are a lot in the chain already without people knowing. Oh, yes. Yes, Yes. that's the scandal that I'm referring to is is Mm. people have been... So China claimed they manufacture synthetic diamonds. We've known they did that for 20 years. But they said they only made small yellow brown ones. They weren't gem quality because they're for industrial purposes. And of course, they were not telling the truth. They've been able to make white gem quality synthetic diamonds for I don't know how long, a very long time. And it turns out... They have been dumping them into the market via India, in Surat, where they're cut, where diamonds in general are cut, most of them. And the people there who do the cutting buy synthetic diamonds also, and then they mix them together. This was uncovered when somebody tested a packet of melee, which people outside the diamond industry have never heard of, but it's uh, how you buy very, very tiny diamonds, like the kind you make pave diamonds out of, or really small ones. You don't buy them one at a time or 10 at a time. You buy a package of melee. And there's always some contamination. There always has been. There have always been a few that are glass or more recently cubic zirconia or whatever. Somebody tested a package of melee a few years back and it was entirely synthetic diamonds. And they freaked out a little bit. It turns out it's not just tiny diamonds. So yeah, that they have absolutely made their way into the market without people knowing it. The person who sells you one might not know they're selling you one. Yes. You definitely wouldn't know if you were buying one because they are diamonds. I, I suppose the way you could tell originally was because they were often put into jewellery that looked cheaper. It just didn't look as well made or... Well, uh, have you seen Lightbox? It still looks kind of... I actually think they're doing that on purpose. That's my opinion. Lightbox is De Beers' synthetic diamond jewelry arm. They acted like they knuckled under and and just broke down and did what everybody else was doing. And they have a synthetic jewelry division, synthetic diamond jewelry company as well. But I don't think that's what they're doing because the jewelry is hideous. It's so ugly. It's so badly designed. But more importantly, it is so badly marketed that nobody wants it. And you don't go from being the best in the world at what you do to being the worst in the world at what you do overnight, unless you're doing it on purpose. These are the people who made everyone think they wanted diamonds to begin with. They can't sell us on synthetic diamonds. Because they don't want to. I think because they want to differentiate synthetic from real and make sure we know synthetic is cheap. Well, it's as you said, if you're offered the two, what are you going to take? You want the mindset. I don't think they're willing to rely on that. So now they've got a big synthetic jewelry company that makes ugly jewelry and markets it poorly. Bring back Francis Garrity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, maybe she's still there. You know, <laughs> with her head in a jar, because that's a really clever way 
to make sure people continue to idealize natural diamonds, which is your main product. If you think that jewellery reflects ourselves and our desires back to us, what does it say about us? Well, that's very individual. Okay, it's individual. Yeah. But the fact that we collectively like diamonds, what does that say about us? It says we evolved to look for water, honestly. But when I said that, what I meant was that it's individual. How you behave about it, what you want, how much you want it, what you're willing to do to get it, what you do with it when you get it, tells you more about you than it does about jewellery or wealth. And what are you going to do about your lost jewellery? Are you going to replace it? Will you replace it with something as similar as you can find? Well, you know, the opal necklace, I can replace. It's not easy, but I can get another one. It was just, you know, when people carve opals like pearls. It was a strand of big opal, white opal pearls. I can get another one of those. I've seen those in a few places in the last 10 years. Mine was antique, but it doesn't matter. It's funny you ask because the blue pearls, I mean, there were five or six other things, but the blue pearls, I did look to see if I could find more. And they were particularly iridescent blue Akoya pearls. I found them and I could buy another strand, but I haven't done it. I think it would just make me sad. Because it's not the real one. If your dog got hit by a car, would you go get a dog Mm. that looked exactly like it? Mm. So this is how much jewelry can mean to us. Yeah, absolutely. Is it valuable? Do I love it? Do I love my mom? You know, was I a happy child? These things all get squished together in that little sticky spot in your mind. And every time I look at a new one, I'll just think somebody stole my blue pearls. I'm weirdly upset about it, given that I haven't worn them in like 10 years. Well, it's, it's there. It's a sort of tangible memory, isn't it? Yeah. That's there. Absolutely. And even if you weren't wearing it, you would see it every day when you open your jewellery box. Yeah. Well, jewellery is very much like that, I think. Mm. A tangible memory is a good way to put it. I, I've always thought of it like artefacts. Mm-hmm. An artefact of another time, an artefact of a memory, an artefact of a place or a relationship or whatever. Well, thank you very much indeed, Asia, for sharing your thoughts and your ideas and your book and your film that um, we'll look forward to seeing. So thank you very much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you for listening. For this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website, carolwalton.com slash podcasts. Please share it any way you can. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed on any of the platforms where you get your podcasts. And we love to have a rating and a comment. You can find out more about our sponsors at foolygemstones.com. And please join me again in two weeks for the next Jeweled Nugget. I've been wanting to get the voice and stories of the legendary English writer, designer and socialite Nikki Haslam on the podcast for some time and took advantage at the winter holidays um, when I was staying quite nearby his country home to go over there and record a podcast. So please join me in two weeks when we are going to be talking about Nikki Haslam's experiences of working at American Vogue during the 1960s. It's going to be about women, glamour and jewels and the 60s explosion. So please join me then. 
And in the meantime, I wanted to thank all our listeners in Ireland, as this is going out a couple of days after St. Patrick's Day. I wanted to thank you because we've actually reached number two in the Apple podcast list under fashion. So thank you and keep listening and join me again in two weeks. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Woolton is produced by Natasha Callan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Woolton.